Hi, this is Arij Noor, and this is the podcast of Triple R's The Wrap, a weekly radio show weaving conversations about culture, politics, literature, art and music into a weekly mix. Broadcast live on Triple R from Kulin Nations land in Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. And now I'm going to play you a chat that I've had with Dr. Marlon Moncrief, who is a leader in the field of research into the history of minority ethnic group participation in competitive cycling in Britain. It's kind of different to what I usually engage with, but I think it is such an interesting and important story nonetheless. His groundbreaking race education work entitled Made in Britain, Uncovering the Life Histories of Black British Champions in Cycling, has won wide acclaim for illuminating issues of racial inequality, monoethnic representation, and the need for anti-racism discourses to support broader inclusion and diversity. And his research work has been exhibited in various venues across the UK. It's also featured on BBC, television and radio. And he's just got some really amazing insights into this world of cycling, but also more broadly into what these kind of big and older traditional institutions mean for black people and communities of colour. So here's my chat with Marlon. I guess I want to start with something that might not be relevant to your work specifically, but Naomi Osaka made a statement on social media when she was protesting and decided not to play tennis, that essentially tennis is an inherently white-dominated institution and that she kind of recognises that and she kind of made the statement of, you can, I'm I'm not going to play and therefore... That's my decision with while also acknowledging tennis and the history of tennis, oftentimes in other sports like NFL or even in Australia with the AFL, athletes might say something about the world out there, but not too much about the world in within the sport. What did you make of that statement if you recognize it or if you remember seeing it? I think she's gone to the heart of the issue, which some people might see as radical. Well, it is radical because what essentially I get from what you've suggested, she said, is that the world is a stage, everything's a construct, and that construct has been built by Eurocentric or white minds, if you want. Okay, so where it comes to sports like tennis, even the Tour de France, even the Olympics, even the modern Olympics, Baron de Coubertin, he was a French aristocrat. And if you consider the events at the Olympic Games, most of those are Eurocentric events, which exclude global South nations. So, for example, if you want to win a gold medal in sailing, you're not going to get a team from Tanzania or Ghana um, competing for that. You're going to get teams from Germany and, 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 and the USN and Australia and the UK. So I think she's kind of looked at that through the lens of tennis to say, look, this is a white construct and by me not even competing in this is enough of a protest, you know? (laughs) It's almost like sort of not dismissing it, but saying, look, I I know that this is a white construct anyway and, you know, I don't have to participate in this. Yeah. And also what I recognise is like an acknowledgement of the fact that maybe you can enjoy me and my, my sporting accolades and my athleticism and my achievements but I'm also a black woman and there's a whole heap of stuff going on here and outside and you don't necessarily get to enjoy this without all of this. Yeah, I think I think she's almost aiming to play down the 
level of value and importance and prestige that is given to that history. I, th- you know, I mean, well, maybe, maybe not sort of, I don't think she's able to dismiss it in, in, in that, you know, you know, it's, it's not important to white people or European people. I think, I think she recognises that, but I think she's saying that, and this is me, this is what is important to me as well. So yes, I can participate and, and you can see my grace in this, but there's a lot more to me that is more, that is just as important as that is to you. Yeah. It's amazing to see that in such a big stage, on, on such a big stage. And it's kind of exciting to see that on a big stage. In terms of cycling and your kind of research interests, I do want to start with like where, when and how you got to researching, thinking about engaging with the cycling world. Yeah, well, I mean, I've been involved in the sport for about 30 years. Um, I'm a former racer. I raced on the roads, on the track as well. I was I was probably better as a track cyclist, you know, became an elite track sprinter. I won quite a few medals at European level, at national level. I won a World Masters Sprint Silver. I got to the final in 2010. So, yeah, I mean, I've raced for quite a long time. I've also been an event organiser. I've worked with children in the sport. And so I've seen a lot of what's, you know, you know, as a black British man, a minority in the sport, I've, you know, I've, I've followed the sport. And I guess there wasn't many, wasn't many sort of black people racing when I raced at all. You, you, might, you might have seen the odd one or, you know, one or two person turn up at a road race, but, you know, never, never a time trial. When in Britain there was lots of victories at the Olympic Games and there was lots of attention from the media on that. And there was a cycling boom and lots of white cyclists were raised to public attention and were given, you know, high levels of adoration for the successes in the sport. They became knights, they became dames, MBEs, OBEs. That's where where I saw the sport being linked more to nationalism and empire and imperialism, for example, Victoria Pendleton, when she won her gold medals at the Olympics, you know, the media dressed her up as Britannia, you know, which is a massive symbol of empire. And Brad Wiggins as well, he was abused by the media. He, you know, he was dressed up as a, as a mod rocker, which is a, a symbol of a golden age of, of the 1960s, you know, you, you know, the mods and the rockers. So you saw cycling being portrayed in an exclusive cultural way to you know which which was geared towards white people you know white British people and as a black British man I saw that and so I knew that in the sport there were a handful of excellent black British champions in a sport that you know that weren't given attention that their stories their stories had almost been marginalized and so as an educator as an academic I wanted to bring I wanted to amplify their stories just as much as the white stories were being amplified in order to give, you know, the general public an education on black excellence in the sport. And so that was the beginning of my research, uncovering the life histories of black British champions in cycling. It's interesting, like in two parts. One, that you say that there was only a handful of black British cyclists who were kind of working in a more professional capacity. And on the other hand, you say, that the sport itself was, and what you noticed was that its core was quite elitist and, and imperialist and really celebrated imperialism, or British imperialism, the British empire. Is there a correlation between the fact that this is a sport that was very clearly linked to elitism and the fact that there were not that many black cyclists who were 
wanting to engage with the sport professionally and in like a competitive way. I'm not saying that the sport has always been openly showing those discourses of links with empire and imperialism. What I'm saying is that from the London 2012 games where there's a lot of passion, there's a lot of nationalism and the country was looking for heroes, it, you know, it knew that Sycan would produce those heroes. So it amplified those particular actors and where there's success in the now it aims to relate that to its sense of authority in the past and that's what we had in terms of linking Wiggins and Pendleton to Empire and you know as a result of gold medals being won we saw lots of MBs, OBs and knighthoods being awarded. Cycling's always been a, a subculture um, sport and it's always been tribal as well. I mean like clubs have always been named by location so for example if you're from Manchester, you might join the Manchester Wheelers. If, if you're from London, you might join the London Dynamo and so on. And generally run, you know, run by sort of white people. And those handful of cyclists that I knew of had all, they, they, they'd all accessed clubs that, you know, that were white run. And they, they all were able to sort of get involved in the sport and, and be mentored. What I found from my study is that as they progressed and became really good at the sport it was when it came to high stakes races at national championships or, or, for, or, or for selection to represent the country at the olympics or the world championships when they beat the best of their peers the white peers that is when the issues for them occurred the most in terms of not being able to represent great britain and you know perhaps you know what the pattern suggests is that it, it you know you know um, there's a, a specific type of cyclist in terms of look that has always been selected to represent Great Britain more so than black people, if you want. So that, 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 that was an issue for this handful of cyclists. You know, perhaps their faces didn't fit what the national, you know, what, what the national body wanted to represent them on a world stage. And this national body, British Cycling, has seen your work. What has mm-hmm. the response been, if at all? Well, I mean, they... I've done three exhibitions of, of, of this work. So the idea was to sort of collect the oral testimonies from the cyclists and to present them as raw stories with photographs and with memorabilia at exhibitions. So I did my first exhibition in 2018 at the University of Brighton, which I'm working out of. And as that exhibition was occurring, I, I, I did get contact from British Cycling. And I think they made contact because they were interested in what kind of discourses I was kind of projecting. And they invited me up to the National Cycling Centre to to sort of explain what my research was all about. And I didn't, you know, I, I kind of gave them a softer um, explanation because I didn't, you know, you know, I didn't want to say that this is radical research, you know, and, and I'm trying to sort of overthrow British cycling. I just... I didn't lie at all. I just, I, just, I just simply said that this research is to celebrate the Black British champions in the sport, and but also we have to understand how they became champions. What were the obstacles on the way? So you know, it's, it's, it's going to talk about racism. It's going to talk about discrimination. So I think they were they've been very much supportive of the celebration of the athletes, but I think they've been a bit more cautious about the fact that there's also a dark side to this, which implicates the treatment that these cyclists faced under their auspices if you want so Mm. I do want to talk a little bit about these cyclists and maybe in a moment we'll ask you to tell me a little bit about a couple of legends or champions that you've researched but I wonder and and this is kind of something we spoke about a little bit 
earlier, like off off air, I wonder if the kind of traditionalist aspect of cycling and, you know, we can kind of engage with this in relation to other institutions, bigger institutions here in Australia, in other parts of Europe and around the world. I wonder if, you know, this kind of need to cling to tradition is kind of part and parcel of a need to hold on to a colonial history or a bluntly a white supremacist history and imperial history and sometimes there's a conflict between engaging with the traditional and keeping with traditional and also ensuring that the people who were left out or the people who were actively silenced or were not even around during the time when these traditions were built actually don't then become part of the fold. And in Australia in particular, I think a lot about arts institutions and the ways in which, you know, traditions are wanted, you know, we a lot of our arts institutions want to kind of stick to tradition. And some of these arts institutions, and I was saying this to you earlier, were established pre-white Australia policy. And so sometimes some traditions are actively and, you know, <laughs> in terms yeah. of policy exclusive and others are, you know. So I just, I wonder if you've thought about that conflict. Yeah, I have. You know, it, cycling is a microcosm of society in general, you know, in terms of how white structural powers aim, aim to maintain specific cultural traditions in terms of representation, in terms of leadership and so on. As an academic, I've used the theory by a guy called Yon Rousson who talks of historical consciousness. And these are ways of of, of, of being able to sort of understand how the present works by looking at the past, okay, and how that might indicate how the future may be. And for traditionalists, for conservatives, history, what, 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 happened, what happened in the past in, in terms of colonialism, if you're speaking from a, a white colonial Eurocentric perspective, you, you want to be maintaining that, that past in the present and in the future for children now and children yet unborn, because that is that is the worldview that you want to maintain in all cultural forms. And as I said, cycling is a, is, is a microcosm of wider society. This is why I believe cycling has not allowed, because it's very much controlled by a white culture, this is why we haven't seen the influx of black and Asian cyclists come into the sport, because they want to almost clone particular athletes to represent Great Britain. Whilst from a more critical historical consciousness, that would almost aim to sort of dismantle that traditional worldview and perspective and say, look, times, you know, times do move on, times do change, people do move around, people do migrate, people do come into different cultural groups, people do want to integrate, people do want to get into cycling. Yes, we will get black and Asian cyclists that are just as talented as white cyclists. Why don't we accept this and why don't we allow these people to represent Great Britain as well. So that critical way of seeing things would disrupt the traditional and say, look, culture and history and time isn't fixed, it's, it's fluid, it's fluid, and we need to recognise that and, and we need to sort of embrace change. And so cycling hasn't done that, but when you look at other sports in, in Britain, such as athletics, that, you know, they've, they've moved on. I mean, if you looked at the Great Britain af- af- athletics team back in the 19... 19- 50s and 60s and even the 70s all white but now if you look at the Great Britain athletic team it's very much a multicultural representation of the people there so 
you know, people in power, people making decisions in that particular sport have seen that, you know, you know, times move on and we need to change, while cycling hasn't. I mean, look at the commentators in cycling. They're, they're all white, whilst in athletics, when you watch that on television in Great Britain anyway, there's very much a, a multicultural perspective coming. And that's the same for rugby, that's the same for football. If, if you looked at those sports maybe 20 or 30 years ago, the commentators would be all white, the, the, the actors, the players would, would, would be all, all white. They're aiming to maintain a, a specific tradition, but there's been a recognition that, you know, that people have have come to Britain from different parts of the world, aiming to embellish the culture of those particular sports, and therefore we have to move on as well. Cycling hasn't done that. It's aimed to maintain a white cultural hegemony, if you want. And I guess what my research is aiming to do is, is aiming to challenge that by saying, look, you've aimed to maintain that, but there's been some guys and girls who busted that system and who've become who've become the best of their peers and they need to be given respect. If if their profiles are raised, then maybe that could inspire younger black and Asian people to come into the sport. But are you ready for this? Do you want to change? Do you want to move on in, in into the 21st century or do you want to remain the same? Mm. And sometimes when I think about these institutions like cycling, and I imagine it's it's similar here in Australia, it's often a conversation about nostalgia and holding on to traditions. But like we said, sometimes the traditions and sometimes the, the nostalgia include very exclusive components. I want to ask you a little bit about some of the Black British cycling legends, champions that you researched. Just give me an example of one or two people and their story that, you know, I guess the community, if you are interested in cycling, should probably know about had they not dealt with some of the hardships that they did. Sure. Well, I mean, the research covers 50 years of Black British experiences from the 1970s to the current date. And because I was focusing on those black athletes that came in at grassroots and became British champions. The starting point for me is somebody called Maurice Burton. Maurice Burton is from London and he a Jamaican father, white British mother, and he raced for a club called the Velo Club of London, VCL, which some of, um, some of the listeners may know of, based at Hernhill Velodrome in London. And he became a British junior champion in 1973. So the first person of African-Caribbean heritage, Black British, to become a British champion. I think one of the most significant stories for Morris is, is that when he was selected to go to the Commonwealth Games, actually, in New Zealand in 1974. So, yeah, I mean, you know, it, it was recognised. But I think... That was because his coach was a man called Norman Shield, and Norman Shield was the world pursuit champion for Great Britain back in the 60s. So he had a lot of influence in selection in that respect. But what Morris tells me is that when Norman Shield was removed from that sort of position, he didn't ever, Morris didn't ever get selected again to represent England. So anyway, in 1974, after the Commonwealth Games, he didn't, he didn't win any medals at the Commonwealth Games in, in, in New Zealand, but he came back to Britain and there was the national championships and in a scratch race, and he won that race. He beat the he beat the two guys who won the gold and silver at the Commonwealth Games. And when he went to the podium to collect his jersey, the national stripes and the flowers and the cap, the crowd booed him. You know, the white crowd booed him down. And so that was his that was his reception on being the first ever black senior cycling champion in Britain. 
uh, you know, so that's that, that, that's a memory that lives with him. I mean, he won another British Championship in 1975 in the Team Pursuit. He tried to defend his 20-kilometre scratch race title in the same competition, but he was disqualified from that. And that left a bit bitter taste in his mouth. I think the entire cycling culture left a bit of taste in his mouth. So he, he just completely left Great Britain and he, he raced most of his career in Belgium as a six-day racer. Raced with the best cyclists, Merckx, Circu, and made his way on the continent as a professional there. So his story is quite significant. And what what I've done is I've taken some of the early stories of the Black experiences and I've, I've aimed to juxtapose those with some, some more recent experiences. So I haven't just looked at road and track cycling. I've looked at BMX as well because over the last sort of 10 or 15 years there's been a crop of Black BMX racers represent Great Britain. For example, guys like Trey White, Kai White, Quinn Isador, even Sinead Reed. But my focus was more on Trey White because there was a story about Trey White where he, in 2014, he, he, he went on a fantastic run. He won quite a few races for Great Britain. And when it came to selection for the World Championships in Rotterdam, he was told that there were a certain amount of places, but he wouldn't be selected to go. And he, he didn't understand why, because he because he'd won quite a few major races and he was told to win certain races or do well, and he, and, and, he, and, and he did deliver. So he was obviously upset by that. He was being asked to make times down the ramp that were unreasonable compared to others. Anyway... He managed to be able to pay his way to, you know, to pay his own way to go to Rotterdam to represent Great Britain. And British Cycling allowed that. And he went over there and he won the bronze medal. So he beat the two white cyclists that were selected before him and almost embarrassed British Cycling by not selecting him. So those are a couple of examples of different disciplines, but different different eras as well to kind of show you that the issues of selection being overlooked have been a continued pattern, not necessarily for every single Black British cyclist. Mm. I'm not aiming to essentialise the experiences at all. But where you, where you group them together, you see a dominant pattern of oppression and being, you know, and, and, and this is the experience that, that they faced in a dominated white culture. I wonder then, Marlon, if, like, you know, oftentimes... And this is kind of a historical experience for black people, people of colour, particularly in Western societies where we might be left out of institutions. And sometimes I wonder whether we even want to be part of them, right? Like whether is it worth even engaging and being part of that? How do you navigate that kind of perspective with with what you're, you've been working on? I think I think we we spoke a little bit about this when we mentioned Naomi Osaka, didn't we? About her victory at the US Open Tennis Championships and almost downplaying its sense of value, saying that you know that that is how the world is. But I'm a black woman and I see the world differently, and I see things that are just as important or even more important than the US Open, which I want to give my time to. What we what we need to recognise is that everything we are born into stories, you know, and, and we are born we are born into histories. We are born into constructs, and you know, the Olympics is a construct. The U.S. Open tennis is a construct. The cycling world is a construct. The, the Tour de France is a construct, and those mm. constructs are white European constructs. And the thing about those inventions are that they are imposed upon us as what is the greatest thing a human being can do in sport. And they've been constructed by 
you know, white European minds. And because they've been, been imposed upon us, and that is a form of colonialism as well, it's difficult to look to something else that may be of equal value because it hasn't been constructed. <laughs> hasn't been constructed. This is almost like discussion about creating a new world order, if you want, you know, or, or maybe global south countries seeing this and thinking, actually, that, you know, that, that US Open tennis, that, that test match cricket, you know, you know, which is another colonial construct. Why don't we go back to our own indigenous sporting forms or cultural forms and and raise the profile of those and and and, and bring and bring global south countries along with us to say this is what we mean by excellence this is what we mean by culture it hasn't been done it hasn't been done and and people tend to stick to what is the norm and what 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 is it is the norm of excellence in sport so yeah once you know if that particular mindset that i'm talking about becomes if that critical mindset becomes something that people can consider then they will move away from what are the traditions what are the imposed traditions and aim to change the paradigm but people don't because they fear doing that and they tend to conform yeah they fear doing it they tend to conform they live in a social organization where maybe that's not possible they might not have the power it's a lot of it's a lot of different things you're right and I guess sometimes it's the frustration of like if you don't want me, I don't want you either. I just, I don't want to engage kind of comes yeah. out, comes out in this, in conversations like this that can be a little bit frustrating. But yeah, Marlon, thank you so much for your insights. It's really interesting and thoughtful. Thank you for the research that you put together and the work that you do. It's been good chatting. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Wrap a weekly radio show weaving conversations about culture, politics, literature, art and music into a weekly mix. Broadcast live on Triple R from Kulin Nations land in Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and if you have any questions or feedback, please feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website.